Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Brian Parks. Welcome to another sermon provided by Covenant Hope Church in Dubai. I hope that when we're able to gather after the COVID-19 crisis, if you're listening to this sermon and you never joined us before, that you would come and do that. We meet in the Dubai Evangelical Church Center at 4.30 p.m. on Friday afternoons. Let's pray before we begin looking at God's Word. Heavenly Father, you've given us your word, but without your spirit teaching us, opening up the eyes of our hearts, we're without hope. Oh Lord, teach us, convict us, encourage us, transform us today, Lord, by your word. In Christ's name, amen. Often in our lives, small achievements give us hope for larger achievements to be achieved in the future. The little girl that graduates from primary school gives us hope that one day she could graduate from university. The little boy who plays piano in a recital in front of an audience of 10 gives us hope and thoughts that perhaps one day he could play in front of hundreds or thousands. In the same way, when we see the partial fulfillment of God's promises today, it strengthens our faith that God will one day completely fulfill His promises. With this sermon, we are coming to the end of Abraham's life in the book of Genesis, which has been marked by his relationship with the Lord, who made and kept promises to him. But we have to remember that Abraham wasn't the first man to receive promises from God. The Lord had originally given promises to Adam and to his wife Eve, all the way back the very beginning of the book of Genesis. He gave those promises that he would bless Adam and Eve, he would enable them to multiply so that they could fill the newly created earth, that they would then rule over it and take care of it, tend it as his image bearers. They were a priest king and a priest queen, and their descendants would be like them and like God. But Adam and Eve rebelled, and they received the curses due to those who set themselves up as enemies of their creator, Those curses included the promise that they would surely die. But along with the curses that they would die and in all the other ways that their lives were affected came a promise that a seed or an offspring of the woman would one day defeat the seed of the serpent who had tempted them into sin. We saw that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. A promise of hope. And even though Adam and Eve were mercifully spared immediate death, still they eventually died. They were waiting for the promised serpent killer to be born, but they did not meet him. Later came Noah. Noah and his family were mercifully rescued from the flood that God brought on the earth through the ark that he had instructed Noah to build. Promises and blessings were given to Noah after he came out of the ark, but he too sinned, and he died. And we met Abraham then, descended from Noah in chapter 11. Chapter 12 then revealed that God had chosen Abraham next to be the one who received the promises and the blessings. He was the chosen man of God And as Abraham and his wife Sarah followed this God of the heavens and the earth, between them, chapters 12 and 22, the promises have kept unfolding. God would bless him. 
God would make him to become a great nation. God would give him a land to live in for all his descendants, and he'd bless those who blessed Abraham, and he'd curse those who didn't. Finally, all the nations of the earth, God promised, would be blessed through Abraham's family. Now, God is beginning to work out in Abraham's life his plan to fulfill that first promise to Adam and Eve to defeat Satan and death and to restore his original purpose for creation and man in their relationship with him, the God of all the heavens and the earth. But it's turning out, as we read from 12 to 22, that God's plan is a long-term plan. Already it's taken thousands of years to get from Adam to Abraham, and still death reigns on the earth. All people die. And now Abraham and Sarah, like Noah and his wife, like Adam and Eve, are old, and they're near the end of their life. Death is coming. But the promises of God still stand. If God is going to defeat death and restore man, it was going to happen after Abraham and Sarah died. But they had lots of evidence in their lives that God would keep his promises beyond their deaths and that their descendants and even they themselves would be able to see God completely fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15. The message that I want you to learn from the chapters that we're looking at today, which are chapters 23, 24, and the first 18 verses of 25 is this. It's a little bit longer than normal, just like the passage. God's partially fulfilled promises now strengthen our faith to hope in God's completely fulfilled promises in the future. Let me say that again. God's partially fulfilled promises now strengthen our faith to hope in God's completely fulfilled promises in the future. All of the material in these chapters between 23 and 25 verse 18 is meant to show us how God is partially fulfilling His promises to Abraham in order to prove that He will eventually completely fulfill His promises to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants and even, even to us. Each story in this long passage is about a partial fulfillment of God's promises. In writing Genesis, Moses was recounting the message of these chapters to tell the nation of Israel, perhaps as they stood on the edge of the promised land, that God would fulfill His promises for them, not only now, but as they saw God doing that, that that would strengthen their faith in God, enabling them to be obedient to Him for a future fulfillment of all of His promises. We can learn the same thing as well, brothers and sisters. Now, I won't be reading aloud all of these two-plus chapters, but instead I'm going to read some important verses from each chapter and then take us through the stories that come out. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 23 in your Bible, and let's get started. Genesis chapter 23. Now, chapter 22, as you will remember, was the story of Isaac's rescue from death on the mountain of Moriah. God had provided a miraculous ram to take the place of Isaac, who had 
who God, who God had instructed Abraham to sacrifice. But 23, 23 begins with a death from which there is no rescue, at least not now. Sarah, the faith-filled wife of Abraham, dies. Look with me at the first two verses of chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. When God had first created the world, there was nothing in it that would cause weeping and sadness. But death is the saddest of things that man's sin has brought about into the world. Sarah was a woman of faith, not perfect, of course, but she was faithful. She believed God. She had waited decades for God to give her a son. She didn't receive the son until she was in her 90s. And God had done it. God brought that son, Isaac. And together, she and Abraham would have perhaps laughed, because that's what Isaac's name means. They would have laughed until they cried, perhaps. But, but now Abraham is crying tears of sadness over the death of the woman that God had given to him as a wife, Sarah. The death of Sarah is important, and we're going to come back to it toward the end of the sermon because it's death that actually bookends these chapters, the beginning of 23 and right there at the beginning of chapter 25. But it's what happens next in chapter 23 that I think is the focus. I think that's what Moses wants us to think about most when we read chapter 23, what comes after, beginning in, verses, in verse 3. And it focuses on God's partial fulfillment of His promise to give Abraham a place, a land, the land, the land of promise. And that's the first point in the outline this afternoon, a place, a place. And that covers all of the rest of chapter 23. The people called the Hittites are living in the land at this time, and they'll still be a force in the land hundreds of years later when the Israelite nation returns from Egypt and then engages them in battles. But now Abraham is a respected, wealthy man who doesn't own any property himself in the land that's been promised to him, except the rights to the well which King Abimelech has given to him. We read about that just a few chapters before this. Abraham rises from mourning Sarah in the rest of chapter 23, and he immediately approaches the Hittite leaders and asks for land to bury his wife in. Now, the Hittites have great respect for Abraham. They call him a prince of God. Abraham would also have their respect given not only because of his wealth, but he's quite the commander of his own personal army, which in prior chapters defeated the four kings from the east. And what unfolds through the chapter then, through the rest of chapter 23, is a negotiation that might be familiar to many of you who've done business here in the Middle East. It's very familiar, in fact. There's a certain way that negotiations are carried out, a certain protocol that one has to follow. And in fact, if you're new to the Middle East and you come here and you try to enter into a negotiation, you'll very quickly find that the rules are different than what you're used to. And this passage describes perfectly the kinds of things even that we might find in the bazaars and the souks here in the Middle East today. First of all, the Hittites say that 
Abraham can bury Sarah in one of their tombs. That's their offer. But Abraham pushes it a bit further. He asks the leaders of the land to convince Ephron, the son of Zohar, to sell him a place called the Cave of Machpelah. Abraham then wants to offer him the full price. You see, Ephraim is the leader of a whole city. We learn that in verse 10 because he's at the city gates. It talks about his city. And in typical Middle Eastern fashion, Ephron offers to give the field to Abraham free of charge. But as any of us know who've lived here long enough, he doesn't expect Abraham to accept that. That's part of the protocol. It wouldn't be right. And Abraham should know that. And Abraham does. Because we see in verse 12 that it says, that Abraham says this, then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. You see, Abraham wants his purchase of this property to be understood and seen by all the leaders of the Hittites. He wants no opportunity for them to say that he had taken it unfairly or that he had just borrowed it. And so Abraham closes the deal for this cave of Machpelah by offering a huge sum of money, which Ephron readily accepts. And then in verses 17 and 18, they drive home the legal and proper transfer of this property to Abraham. Here's what it says. Look with me at verses 17 and 18 in chapter 23. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Memre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. Now, there would be no doubt in any Hittite leader's mind that Abraham was now the rightful owner of that property. Where Abraham had been a sojourner at the beginning of the chapter, now he's an official landowner at the very end. You see, God was working through this situation to give Abraham a partial fulfillment of the promise that the land, all the land, would one day be the possession of Abraham's descendants. Abraham went on to bury Sarah there, we read at the very end of chapter 23. And perhaps there he's staking an even more irreversible claim to the land by essentially turning this piece of land into a family tomb. Who could claim the land if this prince of God's wife was buried there? Brothers and sisters, we can identify with Abraham in that we too are just sojourners in this world. This world is not our home. This world as it is now stained and ravaged by sin and death is not the place where we will be living permanently. God's promise of physical land for the Israelites is also a promise for us that we must wait for its complete fulfillment when Christ returns. That's what Abraham and Sarah were waiting for in faith, the complete fulfillment of God's promises for them. And this piece of property at what became known as Hebron was a partial fulfillment meant to strengthen their faith in the complete fulfillment which would come in the future. Israel would eventually have control of all the promised land in Solomon's time. It wasn't for hundreds and hundreds of years later. But Abraham had faith for even more. Romans 4.13 says this, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. 
But how do we know that Abraham and Sarah understood God's promise to be that he would inherit the whole world? Well, Hebrews 11, 13 through 16 says about Abraham and Sarah, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus and make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, and if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. One day, Christ would be born, the promised Messiah, a descendant of Abraham. And because He was obedient even to go to the cross, God the Father gave Him all authority in heaven and on earth. It's all His. It's all Christ's. And if you've put your faith in Christ, you are a fellow heir and inheritor with Him. Everything that is His is yours too. That's why Jesus told His disciples on the mountain, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He's speaking to His disciples. People who would be co-inheritors with Him of all of the new creation. Jesus told His disciples before He was crucified, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Abraham was able to own the cave of Machpelah as a partial fulfillment of the promises that God had given him. What part of the new heavens and the new earth has been given to us? We don't have a, a piece of property, so to speak, but we've been given something, the most important part, the most important place, as it were, in the new heavens and the new earth, the cornerstone the only part of the new heavens and the new earth that has been introduced thus far, the risen Jesus Christ. In His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ is the first and foremost important part of the new creation that's already arrived. And we have Christ. We who have trusted in Christ are united to Him by the Spirit. We're Christ's and He is ours. We are co-heirs with the one who's planted the flag, so to speak, and begun the new creation. Abraham had Hebron guaranteeing a complete fulfillment one day, and we have Christ guaranteeing our complete inheritance one day when Christ returns. The next chapter tells of Abraham's last efforts to guide his son of the covenant, Isaac, and to ensure that he was prepared to receive and li live according to the promises of God that were being passed on to him by Abraham. It's a story of Abraham arranging a wife for Isaac so that God could continue the line of Abraham and give him descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens. This chapter we can call a people. 
First it was a place in chapter 23. Now it's partial promises of a people. Now there would be no covenant people of God descended from Abraham if Isaac didn't have a wife from whom those people would come. And in that way, the provision of Rebekah was a partial fulfillment of God's promise to cause entire nations to come from Abraham and Sarah. Let's read the first nine verses of chapter 24 to start with, just to get us started in this story. Follow along with me. Now Abraham was old and well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. It says in verse 1 that the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Abraham is determined that two things should happen before he dies. One, that Isaac would have a wife from his kindred back in Mesopotamia, that's off to the east, rather than from the Canaanite tribes among whom he lives. And secondly, that Isaac not leave the land that God had promised to Abraham's descendants. Now, just a brief comment on the fact that Abraham wanted a wife from his kindred and not a wife from the Canaanite tribes. He didn't want Isaac intermarrying with these other ethnic groups. Now, when we read about the barring of the Israelites and this particular situation as well, barring God's people from intermarrying with other ethnicities, we should be careful to understand that in light of the new covenant and what was actually going on there. What was the concern? The concern was not ethnicity. The concern was religion. And so Abraham didn't want Isaac to marry a woman from the Canaanite tribes because he didn't want Isaac worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. That's what the concern was. And later, hundreds of years later, that would be the concern of God when he gave the law to the Israelites and told them not to intermarry with the peoples in the land. But we live in new covenant times, and we understand that there is nothing wrong with intermarriage between people of different ethnicities or different nationalities. There's nothing wrong with that. What is wrong is marrying someone not in the Lord. And so God's people in the New Testament are likewise commanded 
to only marry someone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, someone who's born again, someone who is a Christian. That was Abraham's concern for Isaac and making sure that he didn't marry a Canaanite woman. And so Abraham put this oldest, most faithful servant under oath to go and find Isaac a wife. And the rest of this very long chapter (laughs) describes this faithful servant's sojourn in Mesopotamia. So a lot of the verses there immediately following what we just read record the servant's travels to Mesopotamia in the east and his God-ordained encounter with Rebekah at a well. Then we see that Moses is describing to us in great detail the servant recounting his purpose for going there and his, how God had directed his encounter with Rebekah at the well. We then see in towards the end of that chapter, he describes uh, brother, how the brother of Rebekah, Laban, and his father, Bethuel, Uh, approved of the match between Rebekah and Isaac, and then eventually Rebekah's agreement to depart immediately with this servant to travel to the promised land. And finally, in verses 62 through 67, we see described Isaac meeting Rebekah for the first time and their marriage and Isaac's love for Rebekah. That whole chapter, chapter 24, ends with verses 66 and 67. Look there with me, 66 and 67. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the longest chapter in Genesis, and there is a lot of detail included here. And like the chapter that came before, this chapter describes um, something that is culturally appropriate. And in this case, it's arranging a marriage. Now, I could spend a lot of time talking about arranged marriages. Let me just say that I believe that God can use arranged marriages, that arranged marriages can go on to be happy, godly marriages that display the gospel, just like marriages that are arranged in different ways in different parts of the world. What I like to say is that all marriages are arranged marriages in some sense, whether they're marriages in the East that are arranged by parents and family, or whether they're marriages typically in the West that are arranged by the couple themselves. But in each case, when a marriage is being arranged, it needs to be arranged by wise and godly people. That's the most important thing. And we see that happening here, in fact. There's three things that I want to draw out for you in this long encounter. The first is the faithfulness and godly devotion of this unnamed servant. All throughout, the servant does exactly what he's pledged to do. And he does it all with godly devotion to the Lord, the God of his master Abraham. You see, he's learned to worship Abraham's God. All throughout, we see that this servant prays at least three times. In verse 12, he prays, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. And then in verse 26, it says, The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord. 
and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. The servant credits the Lord for blessing Abraham and himself. We see it again in verse 35 as well. He says, The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. Now, those of us who are in positions where we serve others, perhaps in our jobs, maybe in our families, we could learn much from this godly servant. His character and his faithfulness to his tasks are a great example of how we must serve our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that he came not to be served, but to serve, and so should we. Brothers and sisters, we should carry out our service to Christ with the same character, the same diligence, the same faithfulness of this unnamed servant. The second thing to note in this true story is the servant's understanding of God's providence or constant guidance every step of the way as he carries out his task of finding Isaac a wife. So for example, in verse 21, it says that the servant gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. He was looking for the guidance of God. In verse 27, he prays, As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Even Rebekah's brother, Laban, and her father, Bethuel, recognize God's providence in leading the servant to them. And so they say in verse 50, The thing has come from the Lord. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines the providence of God like this. God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. If you're not a Christian, the idea that God is constantly and completely in control in the world through His providence might be a new idea for you. The Bible teaches that God isn't just acting in the world sometimes in some places. No, He's acting in the world everywhere, all the time. God is completely in charge of this world. That's what the Bible teaches. And you might wonder to yourself, well, why then do bad, bad things happen? Why is there evil and pain and death in the world? Well, that's because man introduced sin into the world, but God is still in control. He was in control in the very beginning, and He's still in control in the world today. And so in a world of sin and evil, God's providence his control, His absolute rule is a great comfort to Christians no matter what they're experiencing in life. One noted theologian, James Packer, put it this way, The doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces like fortune, chance, luck, or fate. All that happens to them is divinely planned. And each event comes as a new invitation to trust and obey and rejoice, knowing that all is for one's spiritual and eternal good. If you're not a Christian, what difference would it make if you were to trust in and believe in the God who's in control of your life, even in the moments when it seems like no one is in control, least of all you? Church, do you see God working in the ordinary details of your life? 
Do you pray, thanking him throughout the day, like this servant in chapter 24, sent to find Rebekah? Do you see God working through the miraculous provisions and the painful challenges and trials, all of them for your good? God's providence should be a daily comfort and give us confidence even in the most difficult situations that we face. Now lastly, before I move on to the third thing I want to point out, just a brief comment about making decisions in life. We see, of course, here this man praying a very specific prayer, asking God to orchestrate events in a certain way as a sign to him. And we might be tempted then to go through our life praying for simply signs, signs in everyday occurrences to show us that God is leading us through. But it should be noted that this is the only sign he prays for. And in addition to that, this servant exercises lots of wisdom all along the way. He doesn't wait for a sign. He saddles his camel and he takes all the gifts with him and goes to Mesopotamia. Even when he begins to interact with Laban and Bethuel, Rebekah's father, he acts in a wise way. And had he found out that Rebekah was not one of the kindred of Abraham, it's likely he would have, as he said, turned to the left or to the right and gone and looked for the right woman and waited for God to lead him. And so we too should not simply look for signs, but exercise wisdom as we make decisions day to day in our lives. Lastly, I want to draw your attention in this long chapter to how fitting a bride, as it says in verses 14 and 44, the Lord appointed for Isaac. Rebecca demonstrated servanthood and hospitality. And perhaps most of all, she showed Abraham-like faith when she agreed to travel immediately away from her kindred and her country to the land of promise and to marry a man that she'd never met before. And so it was fitting that her family blessed her as she departed in verse 60. Look there with me, verse 60. They bless her saying, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. It's no coincidence that her family's blessing echoed the promises that God had given to Abraham on the mountain in chapter 22. Brothers and sisters, Isaac was the son of the promise to whom the Lord brought a fitting bride, Rebekah. Jesus would be the perfect son of the promise to whom God has also brought a fitting bride, the church. That's all of us who've repented of our sin and put our trust in Christ. Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's right. Marriage refers and gives us a picture of Christ and the church. Every marriage, in fact. And through the good news of Jesus Christ, together we who have put our trust and faith in Christ, become the bride appointed by God to be united with Him, with Christ, His Son. So far, we've seen God 
partially fulfilling promises to give Abraham and his descendants a place. He's provided a wife for Isaac who would enable Abraham's descendants to become a multitude and a whole nation or a people. And now as we push into chapter 25, we see that God is already beginning to bless the nations through Abraham and his offspring. You remember that promise of God for Abraham? That's our third point this afternoon, the nations. First, it was a place, a people, the nations. Turn with me to chapter 25, and let's read first just the verses 1 through 6, and then we'll skip to 12 through 18. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Latushim, and Luumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephur, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. And now down to verse 12. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Neboeth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kadar, Ab, uh, Adbil, and Mibsan, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jertur, Nafish, and Kadema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. The writer of Genesis here in chapter 25 is surveying the important descendants at the end of their lives. He, he does that in every section of the whole book of Genesis. And when he does that, He's recording the death of each of the important people, the people that we should know. And Abraham's death, which we're about to read of in just a moment, is no different. These records at the end of someone's life, recounting all their descendants, are like the end of a play where the minor actors are the first ones to take a bow before the audience, leaving the most important characters to go last. So first we see that Abraham took another wife or a concubine named Keturah, and we read about the children that were born to him through her. They're all listed. All of them became founders of nations, and many of them will be important in the history of Israel later on, especially Midian. Ishmael's sons then are also recorded for us in those last verses God had promised that back in chapter 17 that Ishmael could not inherit the covenant promises like Isaac, but that God would prosper him and give him 12 sons who themselves would become founders of nations. And here the writer is reminding us God had kept his word. 
The nations are being blessed by Abraham, by God, excuse me, through Abraham, even though there are hints, like in verse 18, that these nations will one day cause Israel problems. The Lord had promised Abraham that he would bless all the families of the earth through him, and that promise is being partially fulfilled here at the end of Abraham's life. The good news promises that God declared to Abraham have become the good news promises declared to us and now to the whole world in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The story of Abraham is one of families and clans and tribes. But the story of the church is that all nations now have the opportunity to repent of their sin and trust in Christ and come into the new nation that Jesus has founded called the church. The church is made up of the nations and will be even more so when the Lord completely, not partially, but completely fulfills His promise to welcome any person from any nation into His kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. Of course, we as a multinational church here in Dubai have the privilege of showing that truth off to the watching world, don't we? We have 16 nationalities in our church of about 100 members. And anyone can join us as a member of the church if they've trusted in Christ and would benefit from a fellowship that communicates in English. Anyone who wants to hear the good news of Christ, anyone is welcome to attend our gatherings and learn about Christ. Hindus, Muslims, people who grew up in the church but know that they haven't been born again, even atheists are welcome to come and learn about Jesus Christ when we gather. And we should be inviting them, brothers and sisters. We want them to come in to hear the good news of Jesus. For centuries, the church has been sending out wave after wave of missionaries to take the gospel to every nation ever since Jesus sent his apostles out into the world. Wycliffe Bible translators, as of a couple years ago, recorded and reported that the Bible... At least one book of the Bible had been translated into 3,312 languages and that the full Bible was available in 670 languages. And I'm sure even now that number's even higher because we want the nations to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we should pray for the nations. You know, if, we've, if you've gathered with us uh, any Friday afternoon, at the Dubai Evangelical Church Center, you would have heard in our services that we pray for the nations. We pray for people groups who have very little gospel witness. We pray for the scriptures to be made available to those groups all over the world to read and hear for themselves. And we pray for missionaries to be sent into the world to live out a gospel witness and share a credible testimony, pointing people towards the truth and beauty of the gospel. And we'll keep doing that because the church was meant for the nations. Lastly, we need to consider how these chapters begin and end. Chapter 23 and chapter 25 there in those first 18 verses. They begin with a death and they end with a death. Sarah and then Abraham. Both went to their grave, but there are hints that God would one day bring them out of that tomb there in the cave of Machpelah.
So the last point is death and life. Death and life. Follow along as I read those last verses there that we're covering this week, verses 7 through 11 in chapter 25. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, a son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried, and Sarah his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. From chapter 3 in Genesis onward, everyone has died. That was the consequence of sin. But now Sarah and Abraham lie in a tomb as well, and all the blessings of God that they had enjoyed are not available to them anymore. Or are they? We know from the New Testament that Abraham was willing to obediently sacrifice his only son Isaac because he believed that God could raise the dead. And Abraham would have known that chief among all the blessings that Adam and Eve received from God was, was life itself. If God had promised to bless Abraham, surely it would include the blessings of life and the defeat of death to give all the other blessings of provision in life, but leave man's greatest enemy to reign would be cruel. Abraham passed on the covenant promises to Isaac, and eventually a descendant of Abraham, thousands of years later, was born into the world who had all the covenant promises of his father, and he had the power of life over death. The Apostle John writes about Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Abraham and Sarah's bodies are still in their tomb, presumably. But Jesus, the Son of the Father, after paying the penalty for our sins through his death on the cross, walked out of his tomb alive. He conquered death and will one day raise Abraham and Sarah as well. They'll be blessed by the Lord Jesus with the greatest of blessings. And the ultimate promise will be fulfilled for them. Everlasting life with God face to face. At the end of their lives, God proved through the partial fulfillment of his promises that he was faithful. That anything that he promised he would do without fail, he would do it. And that gave Abraham and Sarah all throughout their life confidence to trust that the Lord would one day completely fulfill all the promises that he made. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We're people who trust the promises of God. And so when we see God partially fulfilling His promises, it strengthens our faith and it, it gives us hope that one day we will see a complete fulfillment of all of those promises, just like Abraham and Sarah will. We have these promises. Christ has come. He's defeated death. Our sins have been atoned for, forgiven, washed away. 
not counted against us. And we've been adopted into the family of God. We've been given the Holy Spirit who gives new life and unites us with Christ our Lord. About the Holy Spirit, it says this, or about living in our bodies in this sin-streaked world now. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to another in this life through the Spirit's work in us. And we have the church. We have fellowship with one another, a taste of that heavenly community that's to come and a shelter now in which to await for our Savior's return. We have all these things, partially fulfilled promises of the Lord, brothers and sisters. And when we die or when Christ returns, we will be made new, complete, given indestructible life. We will be like Him. When the Allied forces won the Battle of D-Day on the beaches of Normandy, France, in World War II, it was the beginning of the end for the enemy. It was only a matter of time before the day of surrender would come. We also live in between D-Day and V-Day, the day when there is the surrender of our enemy, Satan and death. And though we've all sinned against a holy God, Christ died on the cross to take on Himself the wrath of God that we deserve. And now anyone who turns away from their sin and trusts in Him is born again. The old is gone and the new has come. First in Christ and now in us. God's promises are being partially fulfilled for us, brothers and sisters. But Christ will come again and completely fulfill all that God has promised. A new heavens and a new earth a completely assembled people, blessings for those people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and the destruction of Satan, sin, and death. Do you see God's promises being fulfilled in your life now, Christian? Do you see how He's given us all things in Christ Jesus? Is your faith strengthened to wait with great confidence and hope for our final salvation? Oh, brothers and sisters, we can be confident. We can be sure this God who makes promises will keep His promises, every single one of them, and we will enjoy them forever with Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You for the promises that You've given us We praise you for Jesus Christ, who is the yes and amen to every promise that you've made. We know that through him, those promises will all be not only partially fulfilled, but completely fulfilled one day. Oh Lord, give us faith, deepen our faith, strengthen our faith in these days, in this life, before your return, so that When you come back, we will be found ready.
waiting for you in faith. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.